Hi, this is Lex, and welcome to the Fintech Blueprint. It's your podcast about fintech, decentralized finance, digital banking, investing, robo-advice, artificial intelligence, and all the other frontier technology that is transforming financial services. To get more content, like an illustrated transcript of this conversation in your inbox, subscribe at fintechblueprint.com. So without further delay, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome, everybody, to the podcast. I'm extremely excited about today's conversation with Aaron Klein, the CEO and co-founder of one of my favorite wealth tech firms, Riskalyze. We'll talk about entrepreneurship, about business, and starting companies and the, the adventure. With that, let me welcome Aaron. Hey, so great to be with you, Lex. Excited to do this today. My pleasure. Let's start with your journey into into fintech and and into wealth tech. You've from an early age were very entrepreneurial. Tell us your your start and uh, your adventure. It's true. Yeah, I I, I don't. Um, sometimes I don't know whether to start when I was like nine years old, and I think I was at the park, and I started a detective agency with friends. But you know, the revenue opportunity was not very large there. So quickly moved on. It's all context. It's all relative. I'm sure you were <laughs> killing it in the nine-year-old space. The search for product market fit was a difficult one there, for sure. But uh, none of the moms wanted to wanted to pay us to solve mysteries. But, but nonetheless, you know, I, I actually really did start working at the age of 12, which is kind of funny, like in the afternoons after school for my dad at his company. And, you know, he knew nothing about child labor laws or minimum wage laws for that matter. But it, it, it all kind of worked out in the end. I did a lot of marketing work for him. I did a lot of IT operations, like figuring out how to, you might say, computerize or digitize the business. It was all run on paper, you know, and, and I remember, you know, it's, I'm, I'm really aging myself now, but like, you know, installed like windows for work groups, you know, and I, I remember like setting up a Microsoft mail server so we could send email to each other inside the office. There was still no internet connection there, right? It was just all local. And my dad is like, this is so dumb. Like we can write like, you know, pink while you were out message pad notes to each other and just leave them on our desk. Like, why would we want to send this stupid email thing? So, so anyway. Yeah. You needed to have executive buy-in for this digital transformation <laughs> project. Exactly. Exactly. So I, that was a very interesting business because it was just, you know, it was a simple business. It was wholesale distribution of automatic gate and security equipment, but it was a brutal business because it was very, very low margin, you know, like 18% gross margins. It was all about the velocity of product that you could roll out to, you know, customers. It was a commoditized product. You had no differentiation whatsoever. Everybody had the same product. So, you know, there were a couple of things I learned through that process. One was just watching my dad, like the grit that it takes to be an entrepreneur and how you figure out that there's always a move. Like you can, sometimes you've got a bad hand of cards, but there's, there's always a move that you can make and uh, you just have to figure out what the right move is. And so the other thing that I learned from him was that relationships are just everything in business, that if you take care of your clients, they'll take care of you. And because uh, that was all we had, all we had in that company was relationships, you know. And so, so those are some really interesting learnings. I I wanted to do something in this emerging technology internet space that was starting to kind of wake up in 
you know, call it the late 90s, early 2000s. I was relatively young. I'm like, I convinced my dad to let me and another guy who worked at, at, at his company to kind of like split our time and start up this new thing. And we would make him the third partner, you know, so you keep paying our salaries and like, we'll make you the third partner in this thing around the internet. And so that was a very, you know, kind of unfocused journey, but we were just like experimenting and, and figuring things out. And it started off with like building websites and, and stuff like that. And then you started to get into some of the technologies that were taking shape on the web. And it was super interesting to be able to like, you know, deliver effectively like rudimentary software over the web. Right. And, and that, that became really interesting. It, it turned into kind of my first foray into fintech, you might say, because we were doing a bunch of websites and stuff like that for political candidates and political parties. And in, uh, you know, it kind of morphed into like, they wanted to raise money online. And in those days, there was no PayPal, there was no Stripe, there was no, you know, easy way to get that done. You, you know, these, these political campaigns would literally walk into a bank and they would say, we need a merchant account so we can raise money online. And the bank would say, great, we're going to need three years of financials and a business plan. And, you know, the political campaign is like, here's my business plan, genius. Like come November, we will be out of business, win, lose or draw, you know? So we basically like broke every Visa and MasterCard rule known to man. Like we stitched together four merchant accounts wrote all the software to like account for it all. We did all the underwriting and the risk ourselves. If I'd had this thing called Riskalyze, I'm not really sure that I would have done that because I, I don't think I even fully understood how much risk we were actually taking. But we were just, we were charging like eight and a quarter percent on the money trying to, you know, like manage that risk. And it was, it was a wild journey. So then we learned this really fascinating lesson. So that was like 2000. These, these are some some junk bond politicians uh, <laughs> that you're underwriting there. That's exactly right. Well, and, and what would happen is, is that the election would be over and they would, you know, the person would get a charge on their credit card that said e-donations and they wouldn't remember that they had donated to that politician. They're like, what in the name of heaven is this? And they would like contest it. And, and then we'd have to like, you know, like work, work through that. So we were really on the bag for that money. We'd already sent the money to the politician, you know? So it, it was a fascinating lesson in risk. And we, we did fine. Like we, we, we didn't lose our shirts on that, but what we did rapidly learn this lesson, we, we, you know, 2002, we, we did, we had a fine year. 2003 was a recall election for governor in California. We managed to sign one of the, one of the, you know, candidates for governor. And so then 2004, we had a pretty good year. And then you're sitting there, you're like, wait a minute, this is a very seasonal business. There is no business in 2005. And so we we kind of like got through the 04 election cycle and sold that, not for a lot of money, but sold it, you know, and, and, and did fine to a, a larger competitor who I guess was more accustomed to seasonality than we were. And that kind of led me into a foray, the first kind of foray into SaaS, because we were, you know, that's what was really intriguing to me at that point in time. And we had started working on this project for the company that had bought my dad's company because they had this big problem. They had, you know, four stores, basically, and nobody could see each other's inventory. And all the client server architecture stuff that you could, you know, buy to do that would cost like insane amounts of money and it'd be really difficult to, to, to run. And so we said, wait a minute, you can do this over the internet. You can do this with, you know, like basically SaaS software. That term hadn't been invented yet. Also the term cloud hadn't been invented yet. So I think we called it web-based software, you know, because we didn't know how to coin a term. But that company was just like, 
super early. I mean, we made a lot of mistakes with that company. Uh, I, I, you know, a lot of these lessons I ended up applying to Riskalyze down the road, but like we scaled it way too fast. So we really didn't have kind of like product market fit and repeatability and revenue. We were going in way too many directions at the same time. And we were, we, you know, we, we scaled it up to like 24 people, like way faster than we, than we should have, because we, we didn't really have repeatable revenue, but you know, that company struggled on for a bit. And then I probably didn't know the right VCs, but we could not get the VCs that I knew to buy into the idea of the cloud, basically, you know, so this is like 2006 and they're just like, dude, this market is baked. It's, it's software is sold in boxes. It's called QuickBooks. Like there's. They're, you know, this, this market is over. And so, and they were right as well. I mean, I'm still buying quick, quick book boxes, <laughs> you know, and, but aren't you, are, 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 are you, or, or do you get it on the web? I don't know what you're talking about. I think it's just uh, <laughs> drives and, and records. Yeah. And, okay. All right. All right. All right. I, I, I'm game. I mail my checks to, to, <laughs> are we talking about custodian infrastructure here? Are we talking about, uh... <laughs> no, it's so true. It's so true. There's so much legacy tech there. So it, it was it was just very interesting. So that company kind of went by the wayside, didn't really work out. And, you know, so then I kind of needed to like get a job. Like I was, you know, I'm, I'm married, I have a kid on the way and need to start thinking about making sure that I, you know, kind of take, take care of my family in that way. So so I start thinking about that and a company that came and recruited me to run product for a division basically a division of this options brokerage firm. So it was super interesting because I was leading tech teams that were building effectively technology products to help options traders. And, it, it, you know, we, we also had like, you know, a lot of training around that and stuff like that. And I was spending a lot of time with these people who were options traders, everything from very rudimentary options traders, they had no business actually being options traders in my view, to people who are very, very sophisticated options traders. And I, I just, you know, I remember at that point in time, I was probably like, I don't know, a year into that job. And I have a buddy named Mike McDaniel, who was a financial advisor. And I said to him, it is crazy how the average individual thinks about the concept of risk. And he says, if you think that's crazy, you should see how many of us financial advisors think about it. Like we just have not had the tools in our profession to really understand who our clients are and really connect that to how much risk is truly in their portfolios. And when we started digging into that, I didn't really understand the financial advisor space much at that time, had never used one. My dad had never used one. And so, you know, started digging into that and it just, it just was surreal to me how reliant the industry had been on these qualitative terms like conservative, moderate, and aggressive. You know, like when the contractor and the architect got together to build out the office space that I'm sitting in right now, they did not say, remember, he wants a moderately conservative hallway leading to his moderately aggressive conference room. Like, like they put feet and inches into the blueprints to make sure that the building was going to come together. And I, you know, I just looked at that and was kind of like, man, somebody needs to put the feet and inches into this for financial advisors. And so, so that's kind of how the idea for Riskalyze was born. And that was early, like that was 2008. It took us three more years. I kind of like turned down the idea and was like, I wasn't really sure that there was a business in there, but it took about three years for me to go. I think there's a business in there. I think we can do something around this. And we, we made that decision in November of 2010, started raising capital and launched the business in March of 2011. And here we are yeah. 10 plus years later. 
it's it's an incredible story, and I'm excited to to dig into the Riskalyze journey. I want to kind of just draw some of these lines that you've described, which which is being very hands on in the business world and like living the the entrepreneurial up and down and really like this is like meditation you can't you can't read about it you have to practice it to get the physical experience you know or like learning a sport you don't you don't become a good runner by reading all the running books but only through the practice and you know so it's it's really interesting your journey kind of going from the business building into finance and into what is now fintech and wealth tech and so on. You know, we were we were looking at this space at the robo advisor space around the same time. I still remember like the first website that you had had up when there were like four of us doing it. And one of the things that I really respect about what you guys have done is I think really unparalleled go to market in the digital wealth space. You know, in in retrospect, it's like a really, really sharp positioning and value proposition, and also a really clear product focus, which kind of anchors to probably your experience not having the product focus before. I I'd love to hear sort of around that time in 2010 and give or take. When, when you were looking at the robo-advisor ecosystem, what became that, or the digital wealth, the wealth management platform ecosystem, as all these things of like, come get your pie chart here, or come get your portfolio analysis here, or like, here's a multivariate risk assessment with 10,000 numbers in a PDF, you know, like, how did you like integrate that information, land on the differentiation and, and the concept that ended up being the risk score. And then maybe talk a little bit about the, the go-to-market motions that you started to explore. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. First and foremost, I think that I'm trying to like like rapidly plumb my memory and go, where did this come from? But like I think that I have for a long time had a bias toward technology companies that put a primacy on technology. And on product, and you know, I, I, I kind of, I kind of feel like if you if you put the emphasis on the right thing and you think very carefully about how to craft a product that very simply and elegantly solves a particular need well and and is understandable, I, if there's if there's one thing I learned in my years as a product manager, it's that you know the stuff that looked simple to me turned out to not be not so simple to a user, right? And so I don't know, just kind of honing that skill of like constant iteration and watching people interact with things that I built or things that I designed and had and worked with other engineers to build just gave me that, you know, that, that sense of perspective of like, I think, I think the person can grasp this. I don't think the person can grasp that. Right. And so it was very interesting because when we started Riskalyze, you know, I, I remember laying out for the team kind of, and, and this sounds relatively like a relatively simple framework, but I remember just saying like, look, first we put a great team into place. Then we built great core technology. Then we build a great product on top of that core technology. Then we build amazing distribution. And if we accomplish those four things, none of that is easy, but if we do it, you know, a great business is going to result. Like those are the inputs to a great business. And so it was very interesting because, you know, it was non-obvious, frankly, at the beginning of Riskalyze that there would be a single risk number. Like that was not a consensus opinion. In fact, it was 
wildly debated inside the company throughout, you know, you, you might say like late 2011 and early 2012. And I think it was kind of mid 2012 that I just remember kind of putting, and I'd taken all different sides of the argument, right? But like, I, I kind of put my foot down and I said, look, we need one risk number to explain the concept of risk to the client. Our whole value proposition here is understanding who the client is and match them up with the risk in the portfolio. And we're going to just use the analogy of a speed limit sign to help people understand, you know, who they are and how fast they want to drive versus how fast their portfolio is driving. And like, is there alignment between that? And it was, it was funny because, you know, again, whether it was folks on the team, you know, or early backers of the company that we, you know, valued their advice, like that was a, that was a controversial point of view. I, I just remember people over and over like risk is not just one number. Right. And while true, and while there are a lot of other aspects to it, and we've, you know, since built that out, it, it, it kind of goes back to like, uh, you know, an early lesson that some entrepreneurs find really difficult, I think, to learn, which is you don't build an empire in one step. I, you know, I was talking, I, I was doing a talk for like a, a local like startup SAC group, and there was you know, an entrepreneur on that call who asked this question and, you know, they were explaining this incredible idea that they had and it has like 35 components and, you know, and, and, and they're working on all these different, you know, directions and angles and all these things have to go right for their plan to work because that's why it's going to be so great is because it has all of these different elements. And I just kind of sat back and I said, look, like Jeff Bezos did not build Amazon by starting with Amazon. You know, like he built Amazon by starting with like books, like you, you have to, you have to like, you know, build, uh, you know, one piece at a time. And so here we are today at Riskalyze. And, you know, I think we'd be the first to say that risk isn't just one number. There's a lot of other aspects to it. You have to understand somebody's risk capacity. You have to understand, you know, how they're thinking about the future. You have to understand you know, you could get even deeper into the into the guts of a portfolio with a lot of our deeper, you know, statistical portfolio analysis tools and investment research tools. There's there's a lot of other aspects to this. But at the end of the day, what we started with and what still rings true for our customers today is that, man, we had academics come in and like take a look at this. And they said, you know, basically what you've done, we've been working with, you know, monetary utility theory in the labs for 25, 30 years. Okay. What you've done is you've taken monetary utility theory and you figured out how to make it understandable for the average person and you figured out how to commercialize it. And so now we have a situation where an individual can get a pretty darn good reading of who they are as an individual and how much risk they can handle and match that up to how much risk is in a portfolio. And that in and of itself is invaluable to a financial advisor. Yes, of course, you've got to marry that up to how much risk they need to take in order to reach their goals. Yes, you've got to marry that up to, you know, perhaps deeper analysis of your different portfolio construction options and things like that. But still today, such a huge part of our business is based on that fundamental premise of risk alignment. And uh, I'm really glad we didn't miss the, uh, you might say, the signpost along the way that said, we've got to figure out how to make this easy for people to understand. It worked. Awesome stuff, really. I can't overemphasize, I think, how successful that clarity was in providing a value proposition that was very much muddled in a lot of the other wealth tech that was trying to digitize stuff, but what wasn't 
clear about sort of the behavioral nudge that 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 they were trying to create, right? It was like sort of all in the air. Can you talk a little bit about the platform that developed out of that initial seed and kind of and maybe the role of the role of the financial advisor versus the end user and kind of how how does that whole soup come together? Sure. So, I mean, the platform today, you know, is it starts on the advisor's desktop and and covers, you might say, proposal and risk, you know, portfolio analytics, investment research. We just rolled out discovery, which is a big piece of the investment research pillar that we've been trying to build towards for some time. So it's it's in effect taking, I think a lot of the screener and investment research tools that exist out there act a lot like Yahoo. They're almost like hierarchical, like drill down tools. And we said, what if we put like a Google approach to this? And so the kind of the, you know, the, the, the advisor response to that product has been tremendous and that's really exciting. And then from, from there, you know, one of the big customer demands that we saw was, Hey, I've made this set of decisions in riskalyze for my client. I, I, I'd love to make it like one click easy to implement this. And then I'd love to use the risk number to manage that along the way. So that's what led us into building trading. And that's an interesting whole, interesting journey there, right? Because when we first started what was called autopilot, it was much more of a B2B robo type of approach. And, you know, o- over time, it morphed. I-, I-, I began to believe some different things about how that market was going to take shape and what was going to work for the business model of the, of the kind of advisor that we served. And so we kind of pivoted that product from more of a B2B robo into more of a, a trading and rebalancing product, right? Can you talk about just the, the definitions of what those are? Like what's a B2B robo versus what is an automated trading rebalancing product? Yeah, that's that's a great point. And I would argue that it's been fuzzy for some people uh, for some time, right? But like B2B robo, you know, it, it, it felt like what we were trying to do was make it possible for you know, we, a, a lot of the, the basic theme of B2B Robo was democratize access to advice, right? Like if financial advisors could figure out a way to profitably serve more clients, you know, using a digital approach to serving them, then that could democratize access to advice, make, make, make advice more accessible to more people. Really interesting idea. Turned out that I look back at that era and for us, that was kind of like 15 and maybe early 16 and we, we saw some moderate success with that. When, when I think of our B2B robo era, we were very focused on building kind of the front end engagement technology to do things like gather client you know, uh, information and like open accounts and get all of that data. And, and then really for that first version, we partnered with CLS, a TAMP, you know, a, a Today, it's, it's a division of Orion, right? But we partnered with CLS to do that. And, and, and that was kind of the, the thought process. And, you know, before too long, we were just, we were seeing some moderate success with that. But I think that the core business model had some flaws um, in that the people for whom running a, a, a robo, I think, are going to make sense are large institutions that actually want to you know deliver self-directed investing services to investors at scale. They're just likely going to be better at that. And financial advisors, they weren't putting all their existing clients onto the robo. So they were thinking about the robo as like strapping a self-directed silo onto the side of their business. And I, I, I don't think that turned out to be a great business model for them. So it was, it was kind of a clash between 
what was possible with the technology and what financial advisors were willing to do with the technology, right? And so, you know, just relatively quickly over time, I, I was like, you know, the goal was right. Like the goal of figuring out how to help financial advisors get way more efficient and democratize access to advice is, is a great goal. But if they're not going to embrace the idea and it doesn't really work for their business model to put all of their clients onto that in kind of a basis point model, like maybe there's a different way to think about helping them democratize access to advice and get way more efficient. We started looking at the fact that the average financial advisor spends about 14 hours per year per client on manual back office tasks that are not value creating for the client. So if you start looking at how a financial advisor spends their time, if you can start to collapse that 14 hours by digitizing a lot of it and making it a lot more efficient, that could get really interesting. And then about the same time, we started to get some of the really interesting innovation in email products with kind of like swipe to, to, to file, you know, swipe to archive, swipe to delete, swipe to, you know, to, to do things like that. And it, it just led me to go, you know, that's really how these kinds of tools should work for financial advisors. Right now, they do these big manual processes of loading up all their data and then like spitting out spreadsheets of trades, then going through and reviewing all those trades. And I'm like, why are we operating at the trade level? Like, why can't we operate up at the account level and just like think for, for Lex, you know, I've got some risk number drift and his account's a 68 and it ought to be a 55. Like, do I want to just approve that and make it so, or do I want to snooze that and, and you know, for some reason, talk to Lex about it and come back to it later, right? And like, it should be that easy. And so that's really where we started from in kind of the pivot of, of you know, towards what we today call riskalized trading. Um, and we, we kind of, one of the things we realized is the autopilot brand was a fine brand. It was a, it was a great brand for its time, but it couldn't lose the connotation that it was a tamp or a robo right and so we're, we were just like well it really isn't it's a trading it's now trading technology that you use to manage accounts that you are still in control of as the financial advisor so we kind of needed to rebrand it just to get people to understand what it was and it has taken off like a rocket i mean today we have 24 billion dollars that advisors are managing on that platform and it's growing like a weed so it's been really exciting to see and so i i, I look at that you know I, that's been an interesting journey with that product in and of itself because you know first we built the the user experience and everybody loved that but we were licensing the trading engine from someone else and that had all sorts of issues, reliability issues over APIs. It had, you know, it, it was not that smart of a trading engine. Candidly, we went and did like a small IP acquisition and effectively like bought the bones of a trading engine and then rebuilt it into our product. So it has all of these amazing tax intelligence capabilities now. You know, it can run millions of scenarios and figure out like the best way to get that account of yours from a 68 to a 55, but stay under your capital gains budget and all kinds of cool things like that. And it was, it was really kind of, again, a reminder that great businesses come when you, you know, put the right people on them, when you build great core technology, then you build a great product experience and then you build great distribution. And so that's, that's kind of the four inputs that I've been uh, focused on there. And it's it's kind of like we were doing it all again with trading. That's really cool. And I think it dovetails with your earlier point that no matter what cards you have, you just need to know that, that a move is available. And I remember that 2015, 2016 moment that was quite difficult in that you can't force 
advisors to do anything. And so you might have had some sort of hypothesis about how the world should be. But if the world is not like that, if you don't want to get heartburn, then the best thing to do is kind of go with the flow. So that's that's super interesting to hear. Well, I think it was Warren Buffett, right, who said, when the reputation of a great manager meets the reputation of a market, you know, it is usually the reputation of the market that emerges unscathed, right? Which is a fancy way of saying like, you know, I'd like to think I'm good as a CEO, but one of the things that is really important, I think, as an entrepreneur to be good at is figuring out what markets to kind of ride with and and then try to decipher where the where the current is going, where the tide is going and how to how how to get on that. I mean, I would argue another really good example of that is the deal you put together with Rich with those two companies that became Advisor Engine, right? I mean, that was you, I think, seeing how the currents were flowing with advisor with the advisor space and how to bring two businesses together that were really complementary to, to create some value there. So if you're not reading the marketplace, you're not doing your job as an entrepreneur. Yeah. And I think I, I appreciate that. And I think you, you, end up having these forks in the road and you end up having context within you within which you can make choices and it's amazing i remember like all the choices were actually right you know so it was right to go super strong into b2c robo for some of the companies that won that it was totally right. One of the other directions that we had been looking at with Nasdaq before Advisor Engine was partnering with like a big media company distribution for for like a, a partnership or like a branded integration. And, you know, I think Sigfig ended up doing a bunch of that, although obviously their their stuff has changed over time. But I think it, w- it was also right to think of media brands as, as sort of financial delivery and analytics mechanisms. And I think, you know, I'm in the crypto space now. So things like Coindesk, for example, like ob- obviously data provision, you know, sort of flips into ETF products and so on. And then the the wealth tech direction going more towards the efficiency and digital transformation play was was also a good path. And it it really does come down to like, do you like the road and are you able to execute on it? And less stress about the path not taken and, and more just like what you're bringing to the table. The last question I want to land us on is around, of course, the future and the next five years or so of wealth tech and the platform space, you know, and of course... What, what are you seeing in terms of integrating new types of assets, new types of technologies, and, and where is Riskalyze going? Yeah, I, I you know, this is such uh, an incredibly interesting time, I think, to be in this space. I think that the financial advice business is, is, is just rapidly becoming more dynamic in terms of technology. There's a lot of, I would say, growth in the younger end of the market, which is driving more technology adoption. You know, I, d- I don't know if we see it in the numbers yet, but like we need to see a lot more financial advisors than there are today. Okay. But there there is turnover happening there and there are a lot of new people coming into the business. And so you're, you know, again, not disrespecting our older advisors at all. And we love building technology that they still love to use. But you just have as the as you as you have this generational shift in the makeup of financial advisors, you're ta- a bigger and bigger percentage of the of the advisors you're talking to are digital natives who understand the benefits that technology, the leverage that technology can give them in their businesses. 
And that is just, you know, kind of like washing out old mindsets around technology being a waste of time and really driving a lot of excitement around what technology can do for financial advisors. I also think that another big like shift that I feel like is happening is people are starting to understand the trade-offs for complexity versus uh, ease of use and speed. And so there's a lot about our industry that has been complex for the sake of its own complexity. Like it, it, it's, you look at things and you just go, why do we need like 25 different types of account registrations? And sometimes there's good reasons for those. And many times there's just not, right? And there's, there, are, there are a lot of ways that things are, are getting, a, 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 you know, much, much simpler and easier for advisors to navigate, easier for clients to navigate. And so I think that that's a really interesting trend because if we can get the technology to be able to fade into the background so that the brilliance of the advisor's work can kind of shine through for their clients, that is what will create a lot of growth for those financial advisors. And that's what will ultimately create better results for the clients. I also just think that we're getting more clarity in the industry as a whole as to who, you know, I'm, I'm speaking specifically about financial advisors about who their client is and who it isn't. Like, let's be clear, you you know, I mean, five years ago, when you and I were both in this space, like everybody was like, oh, we have to figure out how to compete in a 25 basis point world, you know, cause we have to compete with Wealthfront. And, and then you're just like, wait a minute, like you do not compete with Wealthfront. Wealthfront has a completely different value proposition. They, they, are not, they are not selling to the same clients. They, they're saying that. They're writing blog posts about how they're going to take you down and disintermediate you, okay? But it turns out that like when things are like super critically important and when they're very, very complex, most humans prefer, you know, even though they want really good digital tools to be able to check on things and like, and like be able to like access their money and see, and see where things are at, they really do want a human on the other end of the line so that they can like, like they have a throat to choke if things are going wrong. Right. And, you know, look, when the robots become sentient, maybe we can talk about a world where behavioral coaching and those kinds of, of value, you know, that, that kind of value that an advisor brings of like calming people down when they're nervous and helping them to make the right kinds of decisions. Maybe we can get to a place where technology can just do that. But I, I look at this and I go, I think we've got, several decades of technology-enabled growth for advisors, not technology disintermediation of advisors. I think we have decades of that growth in, in front of us because I don't see the tax code getting any simpler. I don't see you know life getting any slower for people. And I think that when things are complex and important, they prefer to have a human, you know, I don't want a robo brain surgeon and I don't want a robo advisor <laughs> uh, if I've got a complex financial situation. Now, let's flip the flip the script. If I am in my 20s and have a relatively, you know, less than complex tax situation, okay, and I'm earlier in my career and things like that, why in the name of heaven would I go to a financial advisor? Okay, like I can get a beautiful digital solution, put my money into it, see what it's doing. It communicates well with me. I know I, I know what it's doing. I can manage this. I can do this. And I'll tell you what, a what we would call a robo solution. I like to call them self-directed investment investing solutions, right? A self-directed investing solution is a way better innovation. It's like the Amazon Prime one-click button instead of me having to click the button over and over and over again on 25 different trades on E-Trade. Like that's the difference, you know? And so I, I just look at that. I feel like we've gotten to better clarity 
on who is our client and who is not our client because financial advisors always knew that the you know $25,000 E-Trade guy was not their client but for some reason they thought that the $25,000 Wealthfront guy was their client. Yeah. And that's just not the case. And so we've got more clarity on that. I think there's a lot of technology enabled growth ahead for the financial advisor space and I think it's going to be really interesting to see how it unfolds and there's a lot of different pieces of the advisor tech space that, you know, we expect to continue to make an impact in and and continue to, you know, both deepen our platform and also broaden our platform over time. That's a fantastic answer. I think when the robots become sentient, we're going to have much deeper trouble than how to allocate our portfolios. It's it's wonderful to right. have you. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's like uh, the the fire tornadoes and uh, all you know, the flooding and, and the, they'll, the killer they'll robots. They'll be in there running Palantir, and we'll be like, "Oh, they're watching us right now." Yes, exactly. We'll, we'll have other problems to deal with. Look, it's it's great to catch up. If our listeners want to learn more about Riskalyze or to follow you, where should they go? Sure. Riskalyze.com, probably the best place to learn about Riskalyze. And uh, I'm most active on Twitter. So if you're on Twitter, I'm at Aaron Klein and also hang out on LinkedIn once in a while. But uh, but Twitter is Twitter's my jam. There you go. Cool. Pleasure to catch up and, and chat. Thanks for having me. This was great. Hi, everyone. That's it for this week's episode of the FinTech Blueprint. For more technical deep dives into all things fintech and decentralized finance, check out fintechblueprint.com and grab a free subscription to the newsletter. This is Lex, and I'll see you next time.